Hey, L2 listeners, we've titled this series Prayer, Unplugging and Experiencing God by Russ McKendry. We hope to explain why we need to pray and how to pray in a meaningful way. You can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. Now here's Russ with this week's message. Good morning. It's good to see you all. Um, uh, today we're, we're actually, uh, we started this new series on prayer. Um, last week we did the introduction. This week, hopefully you're going to see that the orientation of this, this series is intended to help you consider what it is you believe about prayer. In, in other words, I, I'm not really going to try to draw you in to change your belief. You can't, you can't even do that until you actually come to understand what it is you already believe. And uh, no matter where you're at this morning, whether you're a Christian or not, you believe something about prayer. We're going to see that in just a moment. But this morning what we're going to do is we're going to look at the cause of prayer. And the primary intention of this sermon is to, to try to get at what we're thinking about why so many people pray. What is that basic impulse? What is that incentive that causes so many people in so many different ways to turn to prayer. And hopefully as we kind of examine that and pull, pull apart some of the different ideas that are being held out there, we're going to be able to better understand what it is that we actually believe and understand or at least be able to assess it to determine how credible it is. Um, I, I told you last week a few statistics, but prayer really is a global phenomenon. It can't be limited to any time in history or any geographical place in the world. It really is a global phenomenon. More than half of all Americans say that they pray at least once a day. And 85% of the people in the United States claim that they pray when they face severe adversity, like a serious health issue. 85 out of 100 people say when they face that kind of a challenge, they find themselves praying. Even when you move among those who classify themselves as spiritual but not religious, they don't have any religious category, one in five, 20%, say that they pray every day, and more than half say that they often feel this a deep connection with nature and with the earth. And so there's a spirituality that is it's irrepressible in our culture and the rest of the world. Even among atheists, those who consider them themselves to not believe in a God, 30% of them admit that they pray from time to time, which is really kind of strange. But um, it kind of underscores this. This, this research just certainly doesn't indicate that everybody prays. But what it does indicate is that most of us do, fairly regularly. And so this question about why people pray should be foundational to grasping what it is you actually believe about prayer. And what I'm going to be able to show you, we're going to look at two parts of this today because they're so interrelated. Um, what you believe about why people pray is what we're going to look at first. But that is so intertwined and engaged with how people pray. What I hope to be able to show you is what you believe about the impetus or the motivation that people have towards praying 
determines how they pray as well. So we're going to be kind of looking at both of those to give some light or shed some light on this whole, this whole landscape today. So I want to begin with this why people pray part of this. And so as you consider all the research that continues to indicate that prayer is an important aspect of everyday life in every culture throughout human history, you cannot examine any culture at any time in human history and not discover an aspect of that culture that depended upon prayer in some way, shape, or form. Now, as we kind of begin to unpack that, it, it, that, that really does pull out the question or put the spotlight on where does that come from? If you go to the Far East and you find out the way that they're praying and they're using wills to spin prayers into the universe to bring peace and, and happiness into the world, or you find in the West some of the Western cultures of prayer, you find in the Middle East with Islam, you find all this diverse... What is the basic impulse that you could boil it down to say, this is the reason people pray? Now, I want you to start by considering what some atheistic theory has said. Now, some of the modern theorists of prayer, uh, Edward B. Taylor, James Fraser, and Sigmund Freud, each of them rec recognized, they, they own the fact, okay, because so many people pray, we have to have some explanation for it. And so whether you've ever reduced it to this or not, most people have. They said we have to at least acknowledge that this is a prolific phenomenon, even in Western societies. Now, all those men, Taylor, Fraser, and Freud, each of them owned the fact that people were praying, but they all attempted to use a Darwinian or an evolutionary model to explain prayer as a basic impulse for human beings to both adapt to their environment and gain some control. Freud went on even to say that what we know is uh, tropical storms, when they come up, they always name them. And most of the time, they give them the names of women. And Freud said the reason that humanity has come to do that is we want to make it personal so that we have some sort of way to relate to it. That's the reason we name storms the way we do. But all of that was spinning out of that same notion, and that was their basic presupposition, is that people pray this way because they want to think that they have some sort of control. Now, all three of those theorists actually came to a point that they said, ultimately, religion's going to yield to science because science is the only reliable means of mastering the powers of the cosmos. In other words, they said, eventually, all the superstition that used to be in the Dark Ages and in, in the early history of humanity all of that magical mysticism is going to give way to science because there's no other way that we can control the elements of the world. Now, many atheists, like Christopher Hitchens, they, they kind of respond to not only prayer, but any religious practice the same way. Listen to what uh, Christopher Hitchens said in his book, God is Not Great. He said, religion comes from the period of human prehistory where nobody had the smallest idea of what was going on. It comes from the bawling and fearful infancy of our species and, and is a babyish attempt to meet our inescapable demand for knowledge as well as for comfort, reassurance, and other infantile needs. Today, the least educated of my 
children know much more about the nature, natural order than any of the founders of religion. That is remarkably dismissive. Because he's basically saying, if, if, if you pray, even when you're facing severe, severe adversity, you are reverting to a fearful, bawling condition in which you're just groping at straws. Now, as dismissive as all of those theories are, I believe that they really fall short of explaining why people pray, especially today. In Western modern societies, people are still praying. Over half of all of the people in the United States admit that they pray on a daily basis. And so to just relegate it to some dark, stupid time of stupidity in human history that caused people just to think that they could control things if they prayed doesn't seem to be a really plausible answer. And I think a lot of people would look at that and say, I, I don't think that really explains why my best friend prays, even if I don't. Now, if you move away from atheistic theories and you move to theistic theories or theories that have been written in regard to people that believe that there's a God, and particularly Christian theory, you begin to see something quite different. In the monotheistic religions of Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, prayer is at the very heart of what it means to believe. I would go as far as to say, if you claim to be a Christian and you're not praying, there's something spectacularly wrong with your faith, because it's at the heart of it. It's at the heart of our faith. Now, in the Muslims are called to pray five times a day. Jews typically, traditionally, have been, uh, they practice prayer three times a day. And so in each of those monotheistic religions, prayer is kind of the centerpiece. It's accepted and necessary part of religious practice, or you start to pull away. You don't believe it. Now, when you move outside of that sphere, and I'm, this is really broad strokes, by the way, um, in religious traditions that hold to pantheistic ideas about God, so pantheistic theories like in Eastern, a lot of the Eastern religious theories, they believe that God actually is in the world. He's not imminent in the world, but and apart from it, he actually is the world. So this rug or that tree or that candle, it is God. And in those systems, there still is a, an affirmation of a God of some sort, it, but those prayers are being, they're being offered sincerely by people that are seeking world peace, the relieving of suffering, and the release of kindness into the world. Now, if you step back and you consider it, I think from a biblical point of view, the near universal phenomenon of prayer is not at all surprising. The Bible begins in the very first chapter in Genesis, and it says that all human beings were created in the image of God, which tells us two things. It tells us that God created us in his image as a reflection of him. To experience humanity, in part, is to experience an aspect of God. This is one of the biggest points that I try to make when I, when I do funerals and memorial services, is that the best explanation for why it hurts so bad when we lose people that we love is that, in one sense, you kind of lost a piece of God in the world. The image of God that was present and, and engaged with your life because of their life is now gone, and it leaves a hole. But beyond just being reflections of God, we 
were intended as his image to relate to God. There was a communion that humanity is shown to have with God that's different than the animal kingdom. It's different than just the raw creation itself. Now, if you step back and you look at the Bible in a main meta-narrative or a whole story, it, it's basically a, a book about God that gives us a surprisingly coherent story about how, how it explains human history and as well as the occurrence of prayer. In the Bible's account of the creation, it says that God brought forth or created order to, to glorify and honor him as well as him to really bring a, a special union with those people that he had relationship with. It was his purpose to kind of show those people to be distinguished and unique. But in the Bible's account of the fall, it explains that when humanity said, we can be like God, we can actually be God, we don't need him. What happened is, is it severed everything. Not only did it sever humanity's relationship with God, it severed humanity's relationship with the creation. And God, when he cursed the man, he said, the, the earth is not going to work with you anymore. When you plant, it's not going to bring up your crops easily. It's going to bring up thorns and thistles. And so there was a severance, not only in the relationship between God and humanity, but humanity and the creation. And lastly, it severed, the fall severed our relationships with each other within humanity. All of that was cut. And in that severance, it brought forth difficulty into the world. And there's, there's an amazing coherence in that. But the Bible doesn't stop there because it explains redemption as the means by which God would actually restore that union between himself and individual people through their faith in Jesus. And by doing that, he makes them redemptive agents in the world. He causes them to be his ambassadors of making all things new. And so it shouldn't surprise us at all when you understand that macro story of the scripture. It shouldn't surprise us at all when we read the Bible, when we find stories of people that are interacting with God. Stories of people that are depicted as having a close union or being in covenant relationship with God, it shouldn't surprise us at all when they cry out to God. Or like when Abraham Kuyper said that prayer is actually a religious act by which we take upon ourselves directly speaking to the eternal being. That shouldn't surprise us at all. Or as David Paulison said, prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. And so when we find it throughout Scripture, from cover to cover, you find people who know God talking to God about his world and their place in the world. It shouldn't surprise us at all. Because if God is in all things, the prayer of God's people is going to be touching all those things as well. It's going to touch our joy. It's going to touch our sorrow. It's going to touch our comfort and our fear. It's going to touch upon our success our failure, it's going to touch upon life and death itself. So the Bible has a basic explanation of how it is that we actually have this, this basic impulse. Now, what, what we saw in Romans chapter 1 and verse 19 and 20, when you heard there in the beginning, Paul wrote in that very first chapter, he said, what can be known about God is plain. It's plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So in that first chapter of Romans, Paul is explaining that humanity has this instinctive orientation towards prayer based upon this inescapable reality of God's presence in every aspect of life. As the existence of, of his involvement in the creation of every aspect of our humanity makes us accountable to God. Now, when he uses the word in verse 20, this, this, this word for perceived, it's a very interesting term in the original language. It, it referred to a sensory perception that results in an intellectual apprehension. All of that is combined and then kind of collides or converges in that single term that he used. He's basically saying your empirical senses are like radar dishes and psychological uh, uh, Research today is telling us that your brainstem is processing somewhere around 10 to 15 million impulses per second. And so all your eyes are are like a satellite dish, capturing information. Your ears are like another one, and your, your taste and your touch and your smell. There are five dishes that are just capturing far more information than you're conscious of. But what he's specifically talking about there is is that empirical data being understood. It's being translated into an intellectual apprehension. You're grasping things. And he says, because of that, there will never be a one of you that will stand before God and be able to say, I never knew there was a God. Now, in that very chapter, he goes on and he says, now some of you are going to use great energy to press that down like a car spring, to try to get it out of your way. But for all of us, it's right there. It's one of the, what um, Cornelius Van Til called the presuppositions of Christianity is that we all know there's a God. Now, it was that observation that caused John Calvin to make this conclusion that he basically said that there's a sense of deity in every one of us. There's a sense of God deep inside of us that we can't deny. It's not acquired. People don't have to teach it to you. It doesn't, it's not gained through reading and your, and your education. It's something that you have this capacity. It's a, a frequency that all of us grasp. And it's irrepressible. And so this sense of deity, I think, is the most plausible explanation for why people pray. We all have a sense that there's a God that can hear us. There's a God that is some way through our circumstances or through nature itself. We heard in Psalm 19 that there's something about this world that causes us to know there's something out there. And that's the reason we pray. Now, as I said earlier, the way, what you conclude about why people pray has a lot to do. It's, it's effectively going to determine how you pray, and how other people pray. And so when we, the second part of it, I think, is really interesting because the example that we started with in Psalm 145, it closes with a statement that I think any one of you that pray would affirm, or at least hope to be true, is that the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. 
We all want that to be true. This week was a remarkably emotional week for, for me and for my family. And I found myself in a condition that two or three of the rest of you might have been, I, I know at least two of you were in a similar condition and going through similar circumstances just this very week. But I found myself completely incapable of changing or determining the outcome. Sitting in a waiting room for six hours for a surgery to be concluded. Sitting in the ICU, just watching a human being, just hanging between life and death. And there's nothing you can do. But we want that to be true. We want to think in that moment, we can humble ourselves and ask for a certain outcome. And that's why we pray. Now, the how of it is, I think, a direct correlation to that. The fact that the vast majority of people pray today, just as they have throughout human history, indicates that there is a fundamental belief or confidence that the prayers that we offer to God are not a waste of time. But that doesn't mean all prayers the same. And so it forces you to say, okay, I have to answer this question. What is it that I would give as, as an answer for why so many people pray? And, but that doesn't tell you that just because you pray, your prayers are right. There's too much diversity in that. Now, I think while each of us, going back to what I said earlier about what Calvin concluded, while each of us has this intuitive sense of God, Christianity also warns us that we tend to take that and refashion that sense of deity to fit our own interests and desires. And in that regard, we, we recreate God in our image. In Psalm 50 and verse 21, David writes there, he said, God is telling, he said, you thought that I was altogether just like you. In Isaiah 44, Isaiah takes this account and he, he talks about a man that cuts down a tree and he, he cuts half of it off and he creates a fire so that he can make his dinner with it. And then the other half, he begins to carve and shape and fashion it and turn it into an idol. And the desperate part comes in verse 20 and 21 where it, it's irrecoverable. His, his ideas of God have been so hijacked because he, he put them on, onto this piece of wood. He said his heart feeds on ashes and he cannot say, is there not a lie in my right hand? And so the Bible saying what you actually conclude about God has to move beyond just some sense of God. It can't be just stuck in this, in, suspended in this vague understanding that there is something out there. Because if it does, it could run us into a ditch from which we may never recover. So all prayer is really a response to the knowledge of God. But it works itself out, and I think in at least two different levels. At the first level, prayer is a basic human instinct. We've seen that. It's a basic human instinct to reach out to something that we know is greater than we are. But at a second level, prayer has to be understood as a spiritual gift of some sorts, just like a person that would be... I, I can remember my, my nephew, James, when, when, he, when he was very young, he had this uncanny hand-eye coordination 
When, he could barely walk, and he would walk around the house, and he would, he would drive nails through plywood. And I remember I went in one day, and there was like a hundred nails through this piece of plywood, and he just would sit and do that. He could catch balls and hit, hit them with a bat in a way that was just amazing. But you see, that was a gift that started with a general inclination, but it was developed over time. And in the same way, prayer has to have a second part to it, a second aspect to it. And that's when we begin to find out what Christianity really has to say about it and why it's so credible. Now, as I've already said, it's, it's this conclusion that distinguishes the way people pray at the most foundational level. In other words, there's something about the way you understand this that is invariably going to set you in a trajectory towards one of two conclusions about how to pray. Now, the first kind of prayer, the way it says that you need to answer God is turning inward. Much of the instruction that is available today, if you were to go across the street in, in, in just a, a good quality bookstore and you're to go to a section on spirituality and pull the books on prayer, the majority of the books that you're going to get on prayer, they explain prayer as a, a way that's actually quite consistent with the mysticism that is found in many of the Eastern religions, but particularly with the Buddhist view. And it explains prayer as a process that attempts to put you in touch with the collective unconscious of the self, an awareness of our oneness with all reality. And the purpose is, is it's intended to be a means of saving us from the idea of ultimate individual reality, which is imagined to exist for all the time to come. Because when, when we begin to believe in our own individuality, we begin to create what one expert in Eastern religion called, it enslaves us to the tyranny of external things. And so the majority of instruction, if you just go across the street and you just pick up a handful of books and you begin to read them, the majority of that instruction is going to tell you that you need to pray to lose yourself. The reason that you pray in the manner of your prayer is intended to turn you in so that you no longer are. Now, if you boil some of the, these things down, it begins to say, is that, is, is that really what I believe? Now, I think when you look at some of the Eastern forms of meditation and stuff, there can be benefits that would come from some of that, but is that really how you answer God? Is that a legitimate response to circumstances outside of you to say, okay, now I'm going to take a few moments to just center myself? Now, let me give you a definition for mysticism. Mysticism is defined as that form of intercourse with God in which the world and the self are absolutely denied, in which human personality is dissolved, disappears, and is absorbed into the infinite unity of the Godhead. See, that is a form of prayer that takes you out of your life. It takes you out of your mind. Literally. The primary goal of inward turning prayer is to release you from objective thought and the sense of personal identity and objective reality. In that sense, the how to pray is intended to release you from the confines of what you believe to be true about yourself, all the crap that you've done, whether you should have shame or guilt. It's intended to allow you to believe whatever you want to believe about yourself.
totally free. The most obvious characteristic of this type of prayer is that the goal is elevating one's inward reflection to the point of allowing it to determine how you understand reality. So there's inward turning prayer and the theory would say that when it comes time for you to answer God, you need to find that answer inside yourself. Now, all the rest of the instruction that is not inward is thereby outward. And it brings us to this last category that I want you to consider. In verse 13 of Psalm 145, David wrote, The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Christian prayer, outward prayer, it, it includes important, it does, very, they're very important aspects of self-examination, contemplation of, of who you are. But that does not mean that it's inward-oriented. The primary orientation of Christian prayer is outward, it's external, it's in the ultimate sense, upward, because it's grounded in what the Bible actually reveals about the character of God and his actions in the world, rather than depending on your vague speculation. In Psalm 145, after David articulated what he believed to be true about the character of God and the faithfulness that he had already manifested among his people, David reveals that the basis of his confidence was grounded in what he knew about God from the Scripture. In other words, what we see is this pattern that David is actually trying to supplant that inner vagueness with objective truth. He's trying to get in ideas that would frame his thoughts rightly. It would help him to think more clearly, not more abstractly. And so there's a, this, the, the, the watershed in this kind of how is significant because it's, it's basically answering, okay, how do you answer God? How, what is it that happens when you sense that you're at the end of yourself, when you sense that here a person is lying in a bed in front of me and there's absolutely nothing I can do? I don't share the expertise of the, of the medical team. I don't understand all the chemicals that are dripping into the, his body or all the wires that are going in and out of his system or all the technology that is flashing in front of my eyes. I'm helpless. Even before these other human beings are completely helpless. But there was a sense in which I could not help but ask that God not allow him to die. And that wasn't losing reality. It was dealing with reality. It was coping with reality. And so David is shown to actually ground this prayer in the revelation of God that actually came from Scripture. Not just turning inward and allowing his vague speculation to now lose reality. Now, Abraham Kuyper oftentimes spoke of the necessity of Scripture to frame our thoughts rightly and thereby to overcome that vagueness and that, to be, be able to actually uncloud our thinking and our speculation about God. Listen to what he wrote. He said, Our thought world is full of falsehood, and so is the outer world. But one thought world is absolutely true, and that is the, word of, the world of God's thoughts. Into this world we must be brought. And 
it into us with the life that belongs to it as brightness to light. To believe is to acknowledge that the entire, entire world of thought within and around us is false and that only God's world of thought is true and abiding. Now, if I was not a Christian sitting in this room, this is where my detector would, would go off. And it would cause me to say, now this is where it seems like you're just obviating it and you're just abstracting it out saying, okay, you guys have the truth and nobody else has the truth. See, a Christian understands deep within her heart, I don't trust myself. I understand that the ideas of my own heart are going to render me like that guy that Isaiah is describing in Isaiah 45. I am capable of making a God out of my own beauty. Not me. Somebody else would do that. But I'm capable of making a God out of something. When I was young, I worked 100-hour weeks so that I could have a Ferrari. That made it all worthwhile. The anticipation of hearing that engine hum, that soft leather wrap itself around my body. It became something, it became an altar upon which I was willing to put almost anything. But you're the same. So you see, Christianity allows us to understand something about ourselves that is so significant that it creates what the Puritans used to call self-abhorrence and self-distrust, something that's like a turd in a punch bowl in our culture. That's not good. It causes people to just think, well, what are you talking about? For the last 20 years, we've been talking about self-esteem and how we need, need to, to actually feel good about ourselves. And there's an aspect in which I think Christians need to own the fact that you need to take responsibility for your life. But it's grounded, it grows in the soil of understanding what Kuiper said. My thought world is full of falsehood. It always has been. It always will be. Whenever I find a person who professes to be a Christian and she will not read her Bible, I discover a person who trusts far too much in herself or other people. She's willing to take the convictions of others and tread the tires of her thinking and her life to run for a while. Of course, until there's a scandal and that teacher shows himself or herself no longer to be trustworthy, then she'll switch ponies. But you see, the sincerity of the heart of a Christian is grounded not in pride, not in elitism, but in a sense that my thought world is false. And unless I seek one and find one and trust one that is not false, my life is going to be very difficult. Turning inward, turning outward. Now, that allows us, I think, to conclude what Tim Keller said. The clearer our sense our understanding of God is, the better our prayers will be. We all have a vagueness in a sense, an awareness of a God that's in a world. But what have we done with that vagueness? What have we done with that falsehood? Because if we've allowed that just sense of deity, as Calvin called it, to be the impetus and the motivation 
then we're willing to just to do how we pray is going to look just like anything. And you're going to be able to say, well, maybe going inwards is not a bad deal. But if that sense of deity is also awakened with an awareness that there's a falsehood at work deep inside of you, you're not willing to answer God in your life with mere speculation, a clouded idea of who he is. You're going to be willing and motivated to figure out who he is. And that's where the graciousness of Scripture begins to shape and fashion an understanding of God that can be depended upon. In the end of the day, each of you, each of you are going to have to decide what you believe about prayer. 85 out of 100 of you, if you were to be in a traffic accident today and you were to be taken to the hospital, 85 out of 100 of you would be praying today. But why? Why? Do you even know? You see, this is the beginning of any serious consideration of prayer. Because you have to figure out what it is that drives us to it and how you actually engage it before you can take any further steps. Now, when you begin to contemplate those questions, I think you have to admit that even for those of you that refuse to pray, your refusal to pray is in fact a spectacular religious conclusion, isn't it? You said, I've seen those people, I've watched those people, this whole week I've watched people in emergency rooms and talked to people that were involved in the situation I was in, and I heard them pray, I listened to them pray, I watched them pray. But for those of you that are willing to say, I refuse to engage that nonsense, that's a religious conclusion. You've made spectacular conclusions. Just because you've pushed yourself away from one thing doesn't mean you haven't pushed yourself towards another. And you've already made spectacular conclusions. That there is no God that he cannot hear. That our prayer is just merely a waste of time. Those are indeed religious beliefs. Now, how do you explain the nearly universal phenomenon of prayer? because it's real. What could possibly be the cause of millions and billions of human beings to depend upon prayer, even daily? And when considering the diversity of, of the theory about prayer, turning inward or turning outward, turning inward that takes you away from objective reality and those that turn you outward and pushes you in it, which one is the most credible to you? See, these are just a few of the questions that you have to answer and understand before you really can own any part of your own personal understanding of prayer. So you can't do this by just pushing it away and just saying, well, I, I just kind of believe this. Hopefully throughout the series, we're going to be able to open up these types of issues that will cause you to understand what you do believe. And perhaps help you evaluate how credible it is. Maybe there's something out there that is far more compelling than what you've heard before. Let me take a couple, a couple of your questions and I'll be done. 
How should we combat the psychological tendency to pray in an effort to try to gain control over God? That, that's actually a, a very, very personal question. One of the things I, I suppose that I would encourage you to do is, is, is to, go to, to get a good book. Uh, um, A.W. Pink wrote a book on the attributes of God that I've used for 25 years. It's a little short book, and every attribute is probably only dealt with in like three or four pages, and it's written in pretty comprehensible English. He doesn't write as a real erudite the, theologian. And I, w- I would encourage you to improve your view of the character of God. Because any attempt to manipulate God, any attempt to turn him into a vending machine that somehow owes you your selection of A9 because you dropped in the coins is a spectacularly unbiblical and low view of God. And the only way that you can break through that is to change your view of God. Because I believe your character of God is what Martin Luther wrote to Erasmus in the early 1500s. He said, I fear that your view of God is far too human. See, we can manipulate each other, but we'll never be able to manipulate the God of heaven. Now, having said that, I would take you back to Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified. Because there you see his humanity crying out to God the way I cried this week. He was able to say, If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but it's not my will, but yours be done. I love that. Because there's times, as just a mere human, I I have desires. I can't fake myself out spiritually or theologically to cause me to just be kind of indifferent to an outcome. I did not want my father to die this week. And I couldn't help but pray that way. Now, I think I was able to do it in a way that I wasn't trying to manipulate God. I was willing to say, if this is your will, just give me the grace and the strength to face it. And so that is an intensely personal question. And it has a lot to do with some of the, the thoughts that no one would know that are going through your heart but you. But if you're praying to control God, I think you need to work on your understanding of his character. Next question. What is the essence of laboring or striving together in prayer? Well, I, I, there's a lot of things come to mind. When Jesus prayed three times in the garden, he didn't say, whoop, strike three, I'm out. Or Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, when he says, I prayed three times that God might remove this thorn in the flesh. And then he said, then I got it, that God said my power is perfected in your weakness. And then he was okay. There, we have those examples that we're supposed, in one sense, to be okay with what it is that God brings. But then there's a time that we are to strive. We are to be the persistent one that keeps knocking onto the door. And somehow the judge comes out and gives the bread. You could wear, the widow would wear the judge down and he would finally do it. Now, can that say, well, if you're just stubborn enough, if you're just, 
if you just have that stick with it attitude that finally you're going to wear God down, he's going to say, okay, okay, just shut up, leave me alone. No, that's not what it's saying. And so this is one of those tensions in Scripture, that there's things that you're going to aspire to that are so deeply intertwined with the desires of your heart that you can't turn loose of them. Maybe it's a child that, that ran away. It's a severed relationship that you just don't have it in you to let go of. And you will strive. As you acknowledge your own limitations, as you acknowledge the necessity and the need of God to act, you will pray every day, all the time. And so there's a place for resting in what God has done. But then there's a time that we need to strive, oftentimes together in prayer. Last question. Can you address praying out loud versus praying in one's head? And situationally, when, more, when one method may be more appropriate than the other. We're, we're going to touch upon this a little bit later, but just briefly I can say um, th- there's a lot, of, a lot of things that have crept into our prayer practice that we need to start recognizing. And one of them was brought to my attention by an old missionary that, that I work with in Kenya. And when he first went into this difficult location in northern Kenya, he told them, he said, all I'm going to try to do is teach you the scripture. And he he said this over and over and over for 15 years. And as a church began to develop and grow up, it was in Loingalani, Kenya. And those tribesmen came to him one day and they said, you know, you told us in the beginning that all you were going to teach us is scripture. And he said, you're right. I've told you that over and over He said, so why do you close your eyes when you pray? He said it completely stopped him in his tracks. And I watch you sometimes because I don't always close my eyes. And I think if some of you saw me watching Zach when he prays, you probably think, well, that's not very spiritual. But I would ask you the same question. So why are you bowing your head and closing your eyes? See, there's a lot of practices like that have crept in, and we've enshrined them as if they're the Word of God, but are they? Now, coming back to this question, I don't always know. I I, I think that there are times that if I failed to pray out loud for people in my office counseling, I think I would be failing them. There's some benefit that I think is conveyed to, to them actually hearing me go before God on their behalf. And I'm not doing it to be showy. I'm not doing it to try to endear them to me. I'm doing it because I feel a sense of responsibility. But I can tell you, I have seen people pray so bombastically that I'm just thinking, shut the hell up. This is stupid. This is a complete waste of time. And the longer they go, the higher the irritation meter goes inside of me. And so I would tell you, if you're not certain that you should pray out loud, then pray. Privately. Jesus tended to, to teach this. He said, you know, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he said, don't be like the Pharisees and pray publicly and lengthen your prayer cord to make sure everybody that doesn't hear you knows that you already did it. He said, go into your prayer closet and your father who sees in secret will hear you. And so tend, I tend to err on the side of private prayer. And so if I tell you that I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you. I will. 
But there's going to be times that if I do pray out loud with you, it's because I feel there's a sense of responsibility that I have then. That's kind of how I navigate that. I hope that helps just a little bit. Those are very good questions today. Very, very, very good. All right, I am going to pray right now, which is really weird after talking about it for so long. Um, and we're going to take communion. This is open communion, so if you're a Christian, we would ask you to do it. Don't sit in your seat looking for something that's wrong with you. You need to examine yourself, but many people don't take communion when they find something wrong. And typically when they ask me that, I'll, I ask them, have you ever taken communion? I said, well, yeah. And I said, how could you possibly sit and think deeply about your life for a couple of moments and not find something that's wrong? I can't. And so taking communion isn't an expression of perfection. It, it is a declaration of dependence. The broken bread simplifies a broken body. The glass of wine symbolizes the blood that our lives are built upon as Christians. If you're a Christian, take some time to examine yourself and then come and partake. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that these would be a few moments in which there would be a spectacular event that would take place right here. That you would not just hold yourself back from us. That even now you would be you, you would just be working deeply in the thoughts and the hearts of the men and women that are either watching online or sitting in this room. And you would cause them to, to see what they really are with and without you. Father, those of us that know you, we need to come again and again and again. Just like my grandsons will run to me or my granddaughters will come to me because I'm their granddad so too we should come to you over and over again. We shouldn't just think, well, I've done that and it's all taken care of. I've got the little piece of paper. Father, let us to be, help us to be tenderhearted people. Speak to us in these moments, I pray. Attend our efforts to express our hearts to you in our worship. We commit these moments to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 